Welcome back to Bubble Trouble, conversations between the independent analyst, Richard Kramer, that's me, and the economist and author, Will Page, that's him. And this is what we do for you. Lay out some inconvenient truths about how business and financial markets really work. And we're continuing our exploration into the dinner party topic of conversation on everyone's lips, AI, with the first of our very many special guests, Professor Chris Speed. This week, we take a design lens to the problems and potential solutions AI presents us with and we don't dare to get on to whether AI is the next bubble or if, for humanity, it spells trouble. More in a moment. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com ACAST. Professor Chris Speed, thank you so much for coming on the show today. We got to meet each other a long time ago during the heart of lockdown, and then more recently back in my hometown of Edinburgh, where you're based. But if I just give you the microphone for a second, it'd be great for you just to introduce yourself, your work briefly, and also really important, how can our audience follow your work? Well, thanks for inviting me both. It's uh, terrific to, um, to get some airtime, if you don't mind me saying, but it's also personally fascinating because I've been... Well, I, look, I worked as an artist, I trained as an artist, but it turns out through art practice, you become very adept at, I think, navigating what we've called the digital economy. It turns out you need to be pretty interdisciplinary of mind, be prepared to talk to economists, through to social scientists, and mm-hmm. even with colleagues such as um, those involved in AI in the School of Informatics. So upon arriving to Edinburgh, I guess, I think way back in the late noughties, it, the big project was to align a design school with a big university and the most powerful department we've seen at Edinburgh has been the School of Informatics. So hence setting up design informatics, which is the interdisciplinary space between design cultures and informatics. As Will knows, more recently, I've been directing the Edinburgh Futures Institute, which takes even more multiple disciplines and places them in a a research teaching melting pot. And requires a rubber desk because you're dealing with so many academic disciplines, you're banging your head against it all the time. And we'll come to the Futures Institute and that incredible development in part two. But in part one, what I wanted to do was start off with this topic of design. Let our audience get their heads around what design means. I like the expression, are you a solution in search of a problem or a problem in search of a solution? And that takes some mental juggling to understand what that that expression means. But my hunch is what design does is it solves that problem. What is the problem you're trying to solve? If you start with design, and then travel down informatics, you get to a much better destination than if you start with informatics and end up with design. That's my guess, but you tell us what design means for our audience's benefit. 
Well, well, look, I think you, you're not wrong. It's just that design means different things to different people when we think about what it does. If we think, I think, at the end of the 20th century, design was perhaps best understood to be instantiated in things, in artifacts, whether it's a Dyson vacuum cleaner or a Heatherwick building it was, or a Johnny Ive iPhone, right? It was, a, it was the artifact. Now, actually, more recently, I think through SaaS, we begin to understand that software shifts where the thing is. And literally, if you think where your iPhone is, you used to think your iPhone or everything that was valuable was in your hands. Actually, everything valuable is now in the cloud that's associated with the thing in your hands. So I think what we've done and what the, tw the 20 year, last 20 years has been at, about understanding a shift from an object dominant logic of design in which the value of things is artifacts to a service dominant logic of things in which it's the things that you have, which might be physical, they might be software, but they let you get the jobs done, the things that matter to you, healthcare, welfare, education, learning, so on and so forth. Wow, I know I'm on a good podcast where I learned so much from the first question. Richard, over to you, sir. <laughs> I'm going to go completely off our script because I want to throw something I hear far too often, and we'll get to talk about AI, but this thing about user experience. I remember probably a decade ago when people started talking about the Internet of Things, and I just laid out all the little gates and user experiences I would have from leaving my building at work to unlock my bicycle to, to get home. And all of these little things, I, I'm still waiting for the user experience of unlocking my bicycle to somehow be improved by software. Haven't we overpromised what software can do with these user experiences when, frankly, the muscle memory and our human ability to change behaviors is fundamentally slower than what maybe the software can propose? Okay, I don't think so, actually, Richard, because I think, I think what happened was many of those things that you were talking about there, from the door, let's, let's think of getting out of your house, whether it's grabbing the keys from the bowl to getting to the door to getting to the car or walking to the train station. Now, all of those things were developed in what I would prefer to be a 20th century model where software wasn't required. What we do know is that now we have constant feedback loops from the software and the interaction with things. There were no feedback loops yeah. between you getting to your car from the bowl of keys to the door to the car. There were just none. And actually, all of those products were sold without any feedback loops. There was no data feedbacks trying to improve them. So they were the best things we could possibly imagine because the market decided that the particular Yale lock, wow. the way we twist it, is probably common in my house to your house because the market decided literally through buying and testing out. Now, that buying and testing out in software is taking place in a snap. The feedback loop from the apps yep. on your phones are feeding back and negotiating at high speed across huge mm. data sets. So the critical thing is the SaaS. I mean, if you begin to think about those loops of the things. Now, having said that, there's nothing wrong with everybody knowing how to open a front door from behind the front door. It's pretty good. We don't need, I'm not convinced we need <laughs> software to come in and fix something that yeah. everybody knows. But there's lots of other technologies in the way now, which actually software as a feedback loop does help. And that's where I was going in the next question. It's a great segue because haven't we been 
capturing intelligence in silicon and software basically for the last 50 years now. And if we want to demystify AI, we can call it a subset of machine learning, which we can call a subset of linear algebra or regression modeling. And eventually, on average, after trying something a million times, you'll get a pretty good idea of how it works or how often it fails. And maybe we're just looking, applying these probability machines everywhere we look. So I guess my design question to you is, what are we solving for? Are we trying to make a lot of little things more productive, cheaper, faster ways to do stuff? Or are we trying to solve for creativity, to try new combinations of things, to try solutions yeah. that we might never have imagined before? Where are you suggesting design focused efforts on optimizing what we do today or on inventing a new future? Uh, good questions. Because um, when you speak of design, I'm, I'm going to have to speak for the design industry, right? I'm a design academic. I won't speak to the, the terrific people at DeepMind who will consider themselves to be the designers of AI. For design, I think well, there's a few things here. Um, one, um, one of the biggest design disruptions we saw in the last 150 years was, of course, Fordism. This entire economic remodeling of how we move from craft building cars. We used to have teams building cars and I, one by one, we would all work together in a small team to build a car. Fordism comes along as an economic solution that knocks out a whole way of organizing the economy. And I think, let's be honest, behind every use of AI, the only you, reason you and I or your listeners are going to adopt an AI is to save time or money. Even if it's my student who thinks, I really want to go out tonight. Maybe I'll just ch try ChatGPT and I can get that essay kickstarted, even if they're an A-star student and they have no intention to plagiarize. It's still a business solution. It's a way of saving time and, time and money. So, it, so what, what I find fantastic is this Fordism was a generic solution for large-scale industries, which we all know transformed the 20th century. What we're seeing now with these platforms, these products, that's down to the individual. Every single individual who chooses to use JetGPT or MidJourney, DALI, is choosing it because of a really a labor-saving option. Now, I think what it's doing, so, that, so that's, a, that's radical, right? Suddenly, we didn't think about personal business models, but now we're going to think about personal business models, labor-saving. That's a problem because not everyone can afford to jump onto the premium version of ChatGPT. I pay for mid-journey, and I'm getting astonishing images, and I pay for them. So there's a bit of work we've got to do because we're going to go big on this. It's going to sort out those who can get access and those who can't. Most people can get access through the web browsers, aren't they? Through search engines, Bing, whether Google, so on and so forth. So it's going to list everybody up proportion but we're still going to find some exclusive it's, users. So that's a bit of a challenge, personally. I think people inside the academy are worried about some of the privilege, again, it's going to offer. And just to make sure we're, you're being clear, you think most of what AI will be used for will be that optimizing? I think it's a, that yeah. let's do things better. Or cheaper. I think, I think whether you find, look, it's going to increase value creation. Whether you place value on economy, on time, on your social status, because you'll use it across social platforms, on your marketing. Again, the problem we have in capitalism, it leans toward an economic bottom line rather than necessarily a social or um, environmental. And then as I throw my thoughts in, I was telling Will the other day that as someone who's 
As a designer, I confess to having an aspect of dyslexia, and I get paralyzed when I start a new Word document. Apple N is terrifying for me, but now I can start Apple N with a whole bunch of words, whether it's to write a university strategy document or to being able to start an essay. I'll work my hardest to uh, develop it according to my narrative, but it, it does bring everyone up to a level. I mean, there's no more C's, you know, Richard. Everything's a B minus. <laughs> Everything is a B minus. And then it's a question. We'll save my college career. You've just given us the headline for this podcast. Now, Professor Speed, do you, I know Chris, Richard's keen to ask from a student's perspective what to make of all this. So just before he does and before we get to the break there, just very quickly, where are we in the hype cycle of this just now? I remember the DeepMind hype cycle. Everybody was talking about DeepMind. Now nobody's talking about DeepMind. Everyone's talking about ChatGPT. Are we at the beginning of the cycle or are we peaking out and it's going to go back in its own little cave and we'll see what happens three or four years down the line? My, my hunch is we must, be, we must be on the uptick. What's interesting is it's seeing different areas. So every sector yeah. now is ingesting, digesting, and thinking through the implications. And what you'll see, it's, I mean, it is fun watching Twitter, isn't it? Because every single sector is processing the implication. And then you'll find every single sector or a lead user in a sector is then offering prompts. Mm -hmm. And then you're beginning to think through, oh, hang on. And you're seeing this ripple effect. So I think we're on oh. the up. I really do. And I don't think every sector is processed. You've got some lead sectors, lead users experimenting with those prompts. And then we're going to have to either fall off a cliff or find out that it just normalizes and everything comes up. I think we went through this with calculators. That's my guess. My <laughs> father was a math teacher. I suspect he was terrified when suddenly, and then I guess suddenly everyone was using or were they using a calculator? They turned up on the risks, wrist. And then at some point, an exam board said, oh, look, just take them into your exams. We'll just write harder questions for you to use the damn That's calculator. Beautiful. So <laughs> it's the normalization that we really want to, we're fascinated with, it, isn't it? So I, I suspect we're on the up yeah. and let's go down. It is that time of year where the students are filling out their UCAS forms. I've just imagined so many just buzzing out and studying informatics. Richard, kick it, sir. Yeah, I guess that as a, to, to wrap up or come to a conclusion of the first part, you've got all these students coming in, fresh faced, 18, 19 years old, having got their three A stars, brilliant kids. And where do you point them? I mean, I know how AI, or if you want to call it more broadly, that optimization function has worked in the corporate world for the last 50 years, which is you wake up in the morning and try to automate what you did yesterday, whether it's finding a fault in the network, preventing a cyber attack, or finding a pattern in some data to, to figure out where new customers are. But when you have kids come in fresh face, want to change the world, want to design new systems, soup to nuts, that'll be more efficient or better for the planet, where do you start them? And I mean, clearly they're going to, assuming they'll get to that point where AI is writing their term papers while they're off in the pub. That's a good one. You know, I mean, look, this is knocked us sideways as a sector that is, that is stood up. I mean, academia. Academia. It's knocked yeah. academia. Universities. We, we, this came in, let's be honest, we saw this coming we didn't pay any attention. Mm -hmm. um, this came in, chat GPT came in middle of last semester. So before Christmas, bang. Who knew? Who knew it would have quite the ease of adoption? The fact you can just get on chat AI and just get to it. So look, imagine that by Christmas, the, the, the exam coursework um, were just pow. I know my, 
I shouldn't declare, but my son was, he was using it in his submission for university. Um, and it, and everyone in January, as we were processing, began to try, try to find a lexicon for spotting. And then, of course, those tools came out in January to see if you can find patterns when there was any evidence that it had used the chat GPT being the, the dominant tool. So we're learning incredibly fast. We've had to put out um, a statement from the university trying to declare almost a moral position because we can't prevent. We have no way of reaching. We also knew, to be honest, that in the past, all applicants had access to a lesser or greater extent in getting scripts written by external people. There's been many essay factories, right, for many years. So we've yes, always yeah, known that yeah. privilege allows people to, to, to benefit where there is money. All we're doing now is working fast with the students. We're speaking to them always and constantly. The staff student liaison committees, where we do bring them into the governance structures, always for the last six months have had a dominant conversation around what are we doing? So we put out the request and urge Edinburgh student to take a critical position, we're pretty convinced that we can still identify criticality. And criticality is this broad term which allows to what extent can a student take the knowledge they have from the world around them and begin to construct unusual organisations of, of knowledge, unique organisations of knowledge in which you can really feed back. We push seminars. I think we'll find a turn back toward the value of a seminar. My hunch is that the value of university education will be for students to to return to face-to-face -to -face after the um, the COVID. So there's wow. nothing like a face-to-face -face conversation, which allows me as a tutor yeah. to pull in a myriad of references, visual, textual. Mm. And in that, you find what we call the criticality emerging. Trust me, there's a bell curve. Mm. It isn't in existing students now all the way. Um, but I, I'm excited as a complimentary tool. Interesting. And just to make sure you answer my question specifically, you've got Will Page has decided to toss up his career as a rockonomist and author and retrain in design at Edinburgh. He goes to the Institute and he says, I want to get started. Do you tell him, look for one of these thorny problems, like, for example, redistributing the rights to music holders, rights holders, and songwriters? Do you tell him to imagine a future and work backwards? Where do you start these students on a journey where they've just been given this sort of plutonium-powered super rocket to travel up to Arthur's seat. That's, that, that's a great provocation and question. What I hope is, and what I do know, is that the intractable problems of the present, social, environmental, do require multiple lenses. There's no point embarking any of these projects on your own. So we urge you to surround yourself, dear Will, applying to Edinburgh. Surround yourself with yeah. lawyers, informaticians, <laughs> moral philosophers, and creatives, and biologists and geoscientists. Surround yourself with as many different epistemical starting points as possible and begin to listen. And then see how that changes the prompts that you would ask if you then entered through just one of those lenses. So we might know Will's a, a rock economist, is that what you called him? Uh, but what might they say if we then introduce him to law? Now, I know Will's pretty good at law, but what if I then throw him into the philosophy school and then pull him out through the music school and then begin to think about how those things are informing going back to the economists and thinking, what did he learn? What did he pick up on the way to ask questions 
whether it's using assisted technology or not, to begin to think about where the industry needs to go. Because I think it's through the multiple lenses that we really do think the intractable problems, the, in, the wicked problems, you're not going to be able to assess that. You're not going to do it on your own. You need to be with people. I hear it. I hear it. Mm. Let me close out part one by saying, for the record, had you been my professor at Edinburgh University back in 2002, I might have actually paid attention and not bluffed it in my exams regardless. But that's a wrap for part one. Back in part two to go down a rabbit hole on this fascinating topic. Back soon. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com spoken today. Welcome back to part two of Bubble Trouble with Professor Chris Speed from Edinburgh. We're going to go down the rabbit hole a little bit and talk about the dinner party conversation I had last night. And it seems like you can't avoid the risks posed by AI. The call for a pause in AI research from senior figures and approaching this question of regulation as if the politicians understand it better than the computer scientists or designers do. So... There was some interesting data in the Financial Times about how only 2 or 7% of the staff at DeepMind or OpenAI are working on what's called alignment, i.e. making sure these systems aren't used for nefarious ends. And, or if you can ask an AI to harm someone or find a way to wreck a network of some sort. Now, how do you as a designer approach tools like this when you know they can be potentially harmful? Are you getting more than 2 or 7% of your students to think about alignment and making sure that AI isn't used in a discriminatory way or a, or a, or a harmful way that everybody seems so exercised about right now? Yeah, I have to say, I don't think it was my idea, but the appointment of Shannon Valor, who came from Google actually, was, was just stunning. So that was probably three years ago now. And I think standing up a moral philosopher, introducing a moral philosopher who understood depth, the technical and the ethical implications of this technology was the fastest move an old university has made. So I'm so proud and pleased. We've embedded Shannon's work and her team, the Center for Techno-Moral Futures, right across the curriculum. I think you'll find that if you Google Edinburgh now, you'll soon follow an association with Shannon because it could have been a real misstep. We could have pursued the technic what we call techno-determinist route, which is lead with one of the oh. best AI schools in the land, but to stand it up and complement it. So in every debate we have now, Shannon, Gina, the team are all there. And their PhD students are absolutely stunning. And let's be clear, a PhD student these days, in the context of the Futures Institute, must be multidisciplinary, from design and philosophy, AI to law. Now, they all under an umbrella 
but they're really leading. So we've now embedded her core course. Every student must take her course in AI and ethics. And she's also just approved a master's program, which kicks off in September. So now I'm really pleased in terms of a leg of the stall of what we're going on. It's there and as strong as I can possibly have hoped for. So no, it's present and it's incredibly conscious, responsible. But let me just flip back to the realities, the real politique, if you will, of both private companies and nation states. So I'm delighted that Edinburgh and other universities are standing up and recognizing that there are some moral dilemmas posed by these systems. But how do you constrain the behavior of some of the largest companies in the world? And indeed, when the race for AI or AI supremacy is couched as a clash of civilizations between the West and China or the US and Europe and lots of other nation state actors, how do you get that academia to infect the thinking of all of these self-interested private actors? It's a good question. I'd like to think the agency of a university is to support the shareholders' assessment of a business. In other words, a business, well, I mean, Cambridge Analytica, right, was entirely flawed as a business because it didn't support what we might call the active moral philosopher within the business proposition. So if we had the hacker, the hustler, and the hipster, and now we're adding a moral philosopher to mitigate against a business uh, making a misstep, then I'm hoping that the universities are places where organization shareholders encourage the C-suite to go to. I mean, we work with, Shannon works very closely with the Scottish AI Alliance. They've just won a large award to support and steer towards Westminster. I mean, it really does depend on a company wanting to lean in. If it wants to lean away, yeah. There's a great phrase in design, sorry to pull it back to design, but yeah, the best defense against the dark arts are the creatives. And I might extend that to the wow, humanities. Yeah. So I repeat that the best defense against the dark arts is leaning into the humanities. Now, if you want to pursue a dark art, if you have a dark business, I'm sure you have every power and intention to move away and not hire us just through conversation, not through consultancy. But what can I do, Richard? Appoint the best people at my end and encourage shareholders to encourage businesses mm. to stay alive by leaning into the moral opportunity. I want to come off the back of that mm. because it's so encouraging to hear that you've done that at the University of Edinburgh in that I often say you can't study economics without philosophy. An economics degree without one class in philosophy is a degree in regurgitation. It doesn't teach you how to think or how did the professor learn how to think? Or how did David Hume see a billiard ball, hit another billiard ball, and know what that billiard ball was about to do? Or Karl Popper with conjectures and refutations. It's so easy for students today to just circumvent how we think in their journey at university, which is all about thinking. And it's That's my good. heart skipped a beat when you talked about that appointment. I want to wing it back to productivity, something you delved into part one, going completely off piece here. But before we get to our smoke signals, let me quote what Gus O'Donnell, most senior civil servant in the British government, known as God, Gus O'Donnell, God, used to say to me, he said to me, productivity comes in three forms. You can either do more with the same, you can do the same with less, or more with less. Here's Tom with the weather. That's a great lecture on productivity in less than 40 seconds. And if you think about your reference to productivity in part one, if you're going to do more with less thanks to this, what is that more 
And what is that less? Can you label them for me? Wow. Okay. The first thing I would refer to is probably, if you don't mind me doing this, is referring to Kate Raworth's Donut Economics. Oh, great book. Where in which we can imagine, listeners, a donut, literally a donut, a ring of a donut. If you take that donut as a ring in which actually represents a nourishment, the cultural nourishment, the economic nourishment to keep jobs, which we know are powerful and they produce cultures, economies, staying within the donut is a place which is incredibly enriching and nourishing. If we exceed the donut with a series of economic propositions which become too much, and I'm trying to recover your language, Will, in the question, then it becomes excessive. It become, We have too many things, or we're doing too much. If we, if we return to the center of the donut, there's nothing there. If I think of Edinburgh without the festivals, there's no nourishment. Now, I know we need to do more with less in Edinburgh, because crikey, on a bad summer in Edinburgh, there's too many hotels. There's not enough taxes. We're just, there's too much comedy. There's yeah. just too much excess. It's no laughing so matter. <laughs> and my hunch is that somewhere is a sweet spot when we take on a quadruple bottom line, which doing just enough to enrich in our lives with culture, doing just enough to make sure the carbon use isn't excessive, just enough to make sure that we have work for everybody and it's appropriate and it's not exploitative and extractive. So I'm not sure I'm answering your question very well, but there seems to be rather than a binary assumption, too much, too little, too less, too more, that we do need to find a place where humans are nourished. I mean, of course, I work in a university, a place where nourishment wants to meet and be thoroughly nourished by bumping into philosophers and economists like yourself. So I'm not going to suggest it's a less or more but there's somewhere in between a series of rhythms where we need to get it right. We are facing a climate crisis, so I'm very keen personally to find ways that we develop economics in such a way that it isn't kind of less or more, but it's responsible. Does that help? Is that right Amen or wrong? Amen to that. Amen to that. I feel that a lot. I'd like to just touch on one really difficult point I'm having with AI and, and, and creativity, and that is that if you think about machine learning, if you think about studying a data set, the likelihood that you'll get an answer outside of that data set when you run extensive recursion models and regression analyses on that data seems unlikely. So how do you reconcile what is fundamentally narrowing of perspective or looking, combing the data for patterns with that fundamentally unpredictable improbable event of creativity, the design inspiration that someone says, you know what, let's do something completely that's not on the whiteboard, that's not on the flip chart, that we just had this brilliant light bulb moment. And will the adoption of these tools narrow people's perspective such that they give up some of that creativity as a trade-off for the productivity gains they're getting? Well, look, so, so we ran a we had a great a early AI visual project in 2016, actually. And I, the proposition was, going to zoom back a bit, is that can things design things? So I'm getting tired of the Heatherwicks. I'm getting tired of the solo designer being our superhero. I think the Dysons and Ives have gone. I think we know we need to design with others to make sure we're listening and learning about their inclusivity. The further question is, if you count how many people are in our collective rooms. And listeners, think how many people 
are in your rooms and now count how many objects are in your rooms. The objects beat hand down the amount of people in the rooms that we're all sitting in by a hundredfold. What if you could ask the experience of all of those things, how they would like to occupy the world? So, for example, we tried to ask this question of a fork. What would a fork like to be? If you ask for humans, 99.9% of humans say a fork is good for eating. If you then run an image search, it turns out some people use forks as splints when they've broken their wrist. Who knew? Turns out the AI spotted that. Turns out that you can tie bows with a fork because you can tie the ribbon around the middle prongs and you get a great uh, ribbon tying tool. Turns out if you do small amounts of gardening, a fork is good. Now, the dominant idea is that people generally think forks are good for one thing. I just taught you three more things that forks are good for. Now, the, when we did the search, it was an image search across the Google catalog, and that's what the AI gave us. So my suggestion is that don't assume just because you have Instagram and humans providing and reinforcing your assumption of what forks are good for. Trust me, if you have a very large data set, an AI is more likely to bring forward radical human uses of forks than I can possibly find from my various consumption spaces. So I think it's a tool. I honestly think that if we push it, let's not product design, let's not let the high street and humans dictate what things are good for, because we might be missing. We might not have mm. the skills to think beyond wow. the market. Richard, I'm tempted to mm. say that another fourth use of a fork is for getting a large piece of bread out your toaster when it's stuck. But seriously, kids, don't try that at home. Richard, we've got a few minutes for some yeah. smoke signals, so time to light up a flame. Yes, we have a tradition in Bubble Trouble where we ask for the uh-oh moments, the smoke signals, the things that make you worried. And with all this incredibly fevered talk about AI and in the future, of course, AGI, the artificial general intelligence, which is going to take over humanity and affect its demise. We got to ask you, since you're steeped in this stuff and in the design world, what are the kind of things you hear, the couple of things that make you go, uh-uh, no, that's really not what we're talking about here. The things that you'd caution listeners to raise the skepticism flag when they hear and just probe a little deeper. Let's have a think. I mean, if I, I try and try to do three very quickly. One, it's so the business model of the individual to use chat GPT tonight, tomorrow, next week is irresistible because it promises you a labor saving option, but you're just not aware of how much carbon it's using, you know? So it's just, yeah, I can use that tool. We are just not getting, I don't think, a feedback loop on how much carbon it's using. I've pushed it away. Another problem. Two, if we can pause there for a second, it is absolutely true that we don't really know yet what this is going to cost. Exactly. What a personal subscription will cost, what more complex searches will cost, how we're going to price it. No one's really talked about that yet. It's just been thrown out there for people to play yeah, with. Precisely. And that energy displacement, economic displacement has not been rehearsed. Two, I understand that there's over 300 languages in Africa. Now, and again, I'm happy to be corrected by listeners, but what, how many languages are going to be introduced into these large data sets that allow us to explore language doing more than just Northwest American English? 
So I'm really mm. acutely aware that we're actually, it's a colonial project, perhaps. It's another West Coast American colonial project, which in the end, I'm just so worried about the representation of other cultures, which might help us understand what it is to be human. And again, there, it's so fascinating to see that Facebook has large language models, which can start to translate between 200 language pairs without going to English in between. So they can do Japanese to Swahili. They can do Urdu to a Turkic language they're speaking in Hungary or Uzbekistan. So you are starting to see that universal translation device, that tricoder we all saw in Star Trek when we were kids, start to be a reality. And the third, I guess, being a creative is attribution. I mean, really interesting to play with mid-journey as a tool, but gee whiz, I know that I'm just pulling the economy. Now, of course, Will and I might share an interest in whether smart contracting can support an attribution from something like mid-journey to a micropayment all the way back. I'm certainly paying 10 bucks, I think, for mid-journey, but is any of that reaching back to the artist? Of course not. So there's some diversion there in value creation, which I'm acutely aware. And I, I don't, I wouldn't dream of using mid-journey to produce images for my own marketing needs, let alone the universities. But even in that idea generation, I'm acutely aware I'm obfuscating the origin. Professor Speed, yeah. in wrapping this one up, I have to say, a guest of our podcast in the future and somebody who wants to work with you on your fantastic futures institute back home in Edinburgh, who runs Miser AI, said to me, he said, if you really think about it, we're right back to where Napster was in the music industry in 1999, 2000. And if you say the Wild West, it sounds cringeable, but it really is. But what you've given our audience, I think, is a great understanding of how to think about the productivity of AI the pros of productivity gains, the cons of productivity gains, and the philosophical questions about productivity gains. And I want to applaud your Futures Institute back home in Edinburgh as one of the first, I think, real, at least on British soil, cross-disciplinary subjects. If ever there was a wake-up call for universities to break down those silos of departments that have been there for hundreds of years and start collaborating, it's here, it's now, it's artificial intelligence. So Professor Chris Speed, thank mm. you so much for joining us on Bubble Trouble. And we would love to get you back because this subject has got a lot more runway that we need to explore. Now, oh, thank you. Thanks very much, guys. And apologies for the derivation down forks. What would you leave? Yale locks in houses. But it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. If you are new to Bubble Trouble, we hope you'll follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share it on your socials. Bubble Trouble is produced by Eric Newsom, Jesse Baker, and Julia Nett at Magnificent Noise. You can learn more at bubbletroublepodcast.com. Until next time, from my co-host Richard Kramer, I'm Will Page. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness, and they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just, I just love a berry. 
So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. On Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.